Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is FolkPod, the podcast where we'll hear from some of the most prolific and talented musicians who I'm lucky enough to call friends. They've got a lot to say about life lived on the road, in a recording studio, and what folk music means to them. So let's get this party started. This week's guest is Lowell Levenger, but known to all of us as Banana from the Youngbloods. Banana is a founding member of the rock group from the 60s, who are best known for their version of the song Get Together. He also worked very closely for years with Mimi Farina and has had a great solo career. He now tours with Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. Welcome, Banana. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I really appreciate you doing this. <laughs> it's a pleasure. And you know, I'm really looking forward to playing with you again. Oh, I can't wait. The few times we got to play together made a great connection there. I agree. As a matter of fact, I think it was that we met at the Folk Alliance Conference in Kansas City, and I was playing with Eric Anderson, and we must have bumped into each other then Yeah, for the first time, I think. That's the year I actually did a room of my own and brought lights and all that stuff, and Eric played in my room. And you played with him. That's right. That's right. For those who don't know what Folk Alliance is or oh my God. why I'd be playing in Banana's hotel room, it's a conference. No, it was a separate room <laughs> entirely that I rented just for the purpose of putting on these showcases. Oh, that's right. I had a room that I slept in that was separate. That's right. You have to pay them to take the beds out and everything. And I... Yeah. <laughs> Oh, but it was so cool, though. You ran an incredible room. You invited some of the most amazing people. But this is a conference that we go to where musicians do showcases in order to get people who book you to come and see you and then hopefully book you. And And you can rent a room and put on your own show. It's your own evening. You invite who you wish. I think you played and accompanied a lot of the folks that you had in your room, which was incredible. That's the first time I saw you live. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. So that was the second year I did it. The first year I did it, I was begging for slots in other people's room along with the other 10,000 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> folks. And then I realized, geez, by only investing, you know, another million dollars, you could have your own room and do whatever the hell you wanted to. So I said, yeah, okay, that's what I'm going to do. That's the only way to make it. Yeah, yeah, that's folk music, folks. But it's a lot of fun. And you do get to meet the coolest people, which is where I've met so many people that I know and so many people that I've accompanied. I did get a chance to accompany you at another conference. What a treat. Yeah, that was Nerfa. Right? Nerfa and? A surfa too, right? Yeah, yeah, one yeah. of those. <laughs> All those Urfas. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope we get a chance to do it again, maybe out on the road somewhere. Yeah. Awesome. Be great. Let's kind of dive into some questions for the fans, because I'm sure a lot of people are curious what you've been doing all these years and how it all started. Did you have music back when you were a kid? I mean, when did you start picking up instruments? Oh, yeah. We had a grand piano in the house. My mom was a pianist and also piano teacher. So as soon as I was big enough to reach the keys, I went started going plunk, plunk, plunk. And some <laughs> plunks sounded better than other plunks. If you could remember the good ones and forget about the bad ones, then you could maybe plunk out something that sounded good. And then, you know, I took lessons. Fortunately, my mom was smart enough to send me to other teachers. <gasps> I had the same thing. My mother was a piano teacher, and she did the exact same thing. She was smart enough to know not to teach me. Hmm. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Well, and it didn't work anyway. <laughs> with the other teachers. <laughs> Practicing was not your forte either, was it? Yeah, I just, I faked it the whole time. <laughs> oh, dear. But later, many, many years later, I had to learn how to do it for real. But yeah, so I started real early. My uh, mom had a bunch of great records. 
And actually, when I was even littler than that, my grandparents had great records, 78s, that I used to listen to and memorize, huh. memorize Danny Kaye stuff and whatnot. Did you sing along? Yeah, I could. I memorized the words and would sing along with him. Yeah. Oh, he was one of my idols, Danny Kaye. No kidding. Are you familiar with him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. absolutely. Yeah. My mother was a big fan as well, so it, it was in the house as well. Yeah, right. And the movies. Yeah. And, and yeah. watch the movies. All the movies, yeah. And he did uh, kids' records right. before the movies and everything. The Little Fiddle. That's right. Oh, he was so good with kids. And as a kid, I loved all those kids' records about music. Rusty and Orchestraville and The Little Fiddle and Dubby the Tuba and Yeah. <laughs> Do you have brothers and sisters? No, I was an only child. And I got into music real early. And you were in New York at the time? No, California. Native New Yorker, but we moved to California when I was three. Oh, you were in California? Settled in Santa Rosa, California, and that's where I grew up. Oh, okay. Santa Rosa is about 50 miles north of San Francisco. Okay. And when did you gravitate towards more rock? I listened to the radio, you know, to the hit parade and all that. This is in the early 50s. And then I discovered the stations over in the East Bay and got into blues and rhythm and blues at about age nine or 10. Wow. And started listening to Jimmy Reed and John Lee Hooker and Lightning Hopkins and Big Bill Brunsey and all that stuff, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. And that leads you into the folk thing. You know, there was Sonny Terry and Pete Seeger album that was really, really cool. So yeah, at about age 10, which would be in 1954, I would take the bus from Santa Rosa over to Berkeley and then walk about 20 blocks into <laughs> the black neighborhood to Music City Records to buy the records that I was hearing on the radio and take them home. That's wild. Yeah. Would you play along? No, mostly I was listening then. I played piano. Okay, right. You hadn't switched over to guitar yet? Oh, no, not until I was about 12 or 13. Okay. Yeah, 13, yeah, yeah. And then you also got into bluegrass, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and that wasn't until high school, until I was like 15 or 16. Well, six, yeah, probably 16 or 17, when I first heard Earl Scruggs. And it just totally changed my life. <laughs> Completely changed my life. That's not amazing. I was already into folk music, and I was already into Pete Seeger and the Weavers, Odetta and Josh White and all that stuff. But yeah, the first time I was introduced to the first 10 seconds of Foggy Mountain Jamboree. <laughs> That's so awesome. That was it for me. All I wanted to do was learn to do that. <laughs> and then you did. So how did you, where you were living, were there other musicians into bluegrass? Probably not. I was actually in private school at that point. And no, there was nobody into bluegrass. Nobody knew what bluegrass was. I bet. But I was going to go to Boston the next year, go to Boston University. That was my senior year of high school when I got introduced. My senior dorm master, English history teacher, compadre, at private school, introduced me to bluegrass, huh. and I'll be forever thankful. And he also told me to go to BU in Boston. Really? Because I was going to say, how did you end up going there? I owe him big time, this guy. His name was David Litton, and he was fresh out of Harvard, and he came to this despotic private school in Pebble Beach, California, where I had been imprisoned. <laughs> he was fresh out of Harvard, and they hired him to be the American history teacher and the senior dorm master. Well, I'd been kicked out in my junior year, but through various donations and conferences and stuff, I had been readmitted for my senior year. 
but I had been put in the room right next to his apartment, the senior dorm master's apartment, oh, okay. so that whoever the senior dorm master was would be able to keep a very close eye on me. Well, it turns out it was this guy, <laughs> David Litton, from fresh out of Harvard, who loved folk music and hated despotism also, just like me. We got along really well. There you go. And he also taught American history out of the book and told what really happened. He was a really cool guy. Anyway, this is back in 1961, right? Okay. So he said, I got these records at home in Boston that I think you'd really like. It's banjo music. Hmm. And I was not hip enough at that time to appreciate Dixieland and thought that I hated banjo music. And I said, don't bother. I don't like banjo music. I like Pete Seeger, but I didn't like banjo music, you know? Right. And uh, he said, no, no, no. It's it's this group, uh, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs. I said, you mm. got to be kidding. Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs. It sounds like a Second Avenue, New York, vaudeville shtick <laughs> comedy routine. <laughs> With banjos. Fabulous. Yeah, great. Or a bad law firm. He says, I, I'm really not interested, man. He says, well, I, I'm going to have them send the records. And he did. And like I say, put the needle on the on the record. And after 10 seconds, my whole life changed. That's all I wanted to do. That's awesome. <laughs> That's such a great story. And he also said, he said, go to BU. Wow. Because I was interested in acting. I wanted to be an actor. Okay. And he said, they have a great theater department. They have a great school of fine and applied arts. And he said, you know, I went to Harvard. He says, I would be riding back from Boston on the MTA to mm. Cambridge. And there would be some girls from BU sitting opposite me or something, and they would look at me and they would snicker and they'd say, typical Harvard. Uh-oh. He's go to BU. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, solely on his advice. And what were you studying then? Because you were not studying music, I know that. No, I was in the School of Fine and Applied Arts, which had on the highest floor the artists, and then on the main floor the theaters folks, and then down in the basement, the musicians. <laughs> of course. And I was a theater major. You know, I wanted to major in acting. But I made friends with a lot of folks down in the basement, the musicians, because I was a musician. Okay, very cool. <laughs> As well. Yes. Was into bluegrass, made friends with other folks who were into bluegrass, and started this group of Banana and the Bunch, old-time music with appeal. Can I ask you the ultimate question? Sure. This may be a weird time to do so, but I got to know where the banana comes from. I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. <laughs> so Peter Golden was also in the theater department. We became good friends. We wrote little skits together and whatnot. And he played guitar and I played banjo. So we decided to try to think of the folkiest, folkiest name from 1936. And we decided it was Harmon and Banana. Huh. Huh. So we formed the group Harmon and Banana and the Bunch, old-time music with appeal. With appeal. I get it. I was Harmon and Banana, and he was the Bunch. And we got a couple of other people to join us, this guy Michael Kane, who's a French horn player from the music department, but also played bass, and then a mandolin player, and started playing gigs. And the Harmon and, people just didn't get that whole Harmon and thing. They right. wanted to know what the and stood for. We would say nothing. <laughs> You know, we were kids, right? We were, you know, freshmen and sophomores yeah. in college. So we didn't know what to do about in-between song pattern. And we were playing New Law City Ramblers stuff and Charlie Poole stuff and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Charlie Patton stuff. So Peter Golden got this compendium, 1915, huge, thick volume book, 1915 Compendium of Medical Knowledge. 
And in between tunes, he would just flip to a disease and read the description. <laughs> but yeah, so he and I were stagehands on the, the Boston University production in our freshman year of On the Town by Betty Comden and uh, Leonard Bernstein and Adolf Green. I'm sure you're familiar with it, right? Sure, yep. The musical comedy, New York, yes. New York, it's a hell of a town. Yeah. The prompt is up and the battery's down. People ride in the hole in the crown, etc. So we were stagehands. Freshmen cannot actually act or appear as extras or anything in a senior production. Ooh. But you can be stagehands. And so we were. Boston University has its beautiful theater downtown right across from Symphony Hall. This magnificent old theater. And that's where they did their productions. They did like four a year, I think. Really cool theater department. So the basic story of On the Town is three sailors on leave in New York for 24 hours. Will they get let or will they find romance? <laughs> right. You can say what you were going to get, what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> so one of them is with this girl and they're taking a ride through Central Park in an open air taxi cab. In the middle of the ride, they sing a song together. So you can't really have a real taxi cab on stage, so they make a flat that's painted like a taxi cab, and they put these dowels sticking out from the back of it, and they have two people crouching down on their hands and knees, <laughs> holding these dowels, and moving on their hands and knees across the stage, moving the cab while the actor and the actress are walking along with it. Right. And then they stop in the middle and they sing the song. And then, you know, something goes wrong and they have to start over again. And then the makeup isn't right. And it's dress <laughs> rehearsal. And they've got to adjust this and that, adjust the costume, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, the two guys are on their hands and knees. Their knees are killing them. They're going sweating and they're going nuts. Get, guess who the two guys are? <laughs> you guys? Yeah. <laughs> Me and Peter Golden. Exactly. Oh, brilliant. In that moment of agony of boredom, that's when we decided we had to think of the folkiest, funkiest name <laughs> in 1936. Right. And we decided it was Harmon and Banana. And we developed the Harmon and Banana secret handshake. Yeah. And the Harmon and Banana <laughs> high sign. So how cool were you guys? Really not cool at all. <laughs> <laughs> Lowly, nerdly. Uh. Folky, old-timey yeah. music. Folky, folky. Yeah. yeah. There's the genesis of the name Banana. So we dropped the Harmon in because it just wasn't working. And did you guys play out a lot? Yeah, we played all over the, the folk coffee houses and stuff. And, well, actually then it kind of devolved into the trolls. So the string band thing kind of petered out. The Rolling Stones came out, and I realized, geez, you know, I know all this stuff from when it was actually all released, the original versions, and why aren't these guys doing it like that? I thought, well, geez, I can do that. So we progressed to be a rhythm and blues band, and Mike Kane stayed on bass, but the rest of the bluegrass guys left, and we got a drummer. And that was the Trolls in Boston, and we started getting gigs at bars and stuff on a fairly regular basis, and I decided that I couldn't continue going full-time at school and went to the dean of men to see if I could go part-time. He was a guy named Mouzon Law, and he was this little twit. So I told him what the deal was. I really wanted to be an actor. I really wanted to continue in school, but I needed to cut back and go part-time because I had all these gigs as a musician and it was earning money, and I loved performing and playing the music. And he said, well, well, well. 
<laughs> you need to devote 115% of your energy towards the theater or you'll never get anywhere. You'll never become an actor. You'll never be a success. You have to drop this music and devote yourself to the theater. And all my old problems in school, I've been thrown out of every school I ever went to, came rearing back up. I'd been behaving myself in college. And all this came just bubbling to the surface along with my middle finger. And <laughs> I turned around and walked out. And that ended my college career. And I have been a professional musician ever since. Oh, amen. I love it. So much for acting. Wow. It would be great to get back into acting now as a character actor, as an old man. That would be cool. Oh, you so would be perfect. Yeah. So you're in the Boston scene now. Did you stay in Boston at that point? Is that where you met Colin? Jesse Colin? Yeah. yeah. When we were playing the 47 and in the folk scene back in the Banana the Bunch days and Bluegrass days and whatnot, this guy, Jerry Corbett, was also in the same folk scene playing the same coffee houses and whatnot, became a friend of ours and hung out at our house. And this guy, Jesse Colin Young, used to come through. He lived in New York, but he came through and played the coffee houses. And he was a singer, songwriter, accompanying himself on guitar, really good picker, incredible voice, really good songs. And he and Corbett became friends and started doing some stuff together. And then the Love and Spoonful was just getting started. They decided, let's be a folk rock band. And they wanted a drummer. And this guy, Joe Bauer, had come from New York and moved in downstairs from us with this woman, Diana Dew, who later gained some fame for inventing the electric dress. Wow. She was from Memphis, as was Joe, and Joe had come to New York and tried to make it as a jazz drummer, and after about a year and a half, it comes slinking into his friend's apartment, licking his wounds with his tail between his legs and setting up his drum set down there and practicing while we're upstairs trying to play acoustic music and stuff. <laughs> it's like, are we going to have drums or music, you know? Bloody drummers. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody drummers. <laughs> I have a question going back to Club 47. Uh-huh. So you hung out there a bit? Yeah, I used to run the Sunday hoots at the Club 47 for a while. I guess Debbie Green, Eric Anderson's first wife, was hanging out there. So you knew her then? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So you got to hear her sing. So I've heard a tape from that era, and I was absolutely blown away. Oh, yeah. By her voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was great. And then later on, you know, 25, 30 years later, we used to get together in Berkeley. Oh, cool. Okay. At these gatherings that happen one or two times a year. I did get to meet her about six months before she passed away in LA. Uh -huh. And I got to work with her literally for like two hours. She was like, I know we've just met and I know you don't know me, but would you come into the studio and put some percussion down on my daughter's track? <laughs> it was quite an experience for me and just a wonderful connection between the two of us, and I was very lucky. Well, I actually did a tour with her, but she was on the tour as a bass player. It was Mimi and me. Yep. Yeah, we had a lot of laughs. I oh. mean, Mimi and I, I've never giggled as much with any human being as I did with Mimi Farina. Really? Yeah. Obviously, I never got to meet Mimi Farina, but for those who don't know her, that's Joan Baez's sister. But she looks so serious on any of the tapes I've seen. Oh, no, she was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And we would just go into giggling, fits of giggling laughter. And then you add Debbie Green to that oh. mix and it goes completely off oh. the walls out of control. Yeah. God, how lucky were you? Yeah. <laughs> God. Okay. So I'll backtrack a little bit to when, uh, when you kind of were talking about starting a folk rock group. 
So they're starting a folk rock group. They're looking for a drummer. We say, take Joe. He's great, man. Really, please. They have this gig <laughs> up in Toronto at the Riverboat for two weeks. And then this guy, Jim Mears, who was a good friend and a guitar player. He was a kind of Travis picker, but, you know, as a parlor guitar player. He never tried to play gigs or anything. So they said, oh, you'll be the bass player. You know, it's just like the bottom four strings of a guitar. And they got him a bass. <laughs> so... They went up to Toronto and played their two weeks at the riverboat Wow! and then came back. And then they had this gig at Gertie's Folk City in New York for two weeks. And prior to that, I'm asleep in my apartment in Cambridge. And in the middle of the night, Corbett comes, wakes me up and says, Banana, you got to come to New York. You got to come to New York. You got to join our band. It's all happening. We got a manager and we got this great gig at Gertie's Folk City. And we want you to come and play electric piano. And I said, wow, that's cool, but I don't have an electric piano. He says, that's okay. He says, I talked to Briggs <laughs> from Burying the Remains. He's going to get a Farfisa organ or something. He wants to sell this electric piano to you. It's a Wurlitzer. And he knew that I always wanted to play Wurlitzer ever since I first heard Ray Charles. So the trolls were really kind of going nowhere slowly. Yeah. And I said, okay. And I bought Briggs' piano, and I had a guitar. Uh, electric guitar, and I went to New York, and I slept on Jesse's floor on the Lower East Side. <laughs> we had this gig at Gertie's Folk City, where it was Jesse Holland Young and the Jerry Corbett Three, right? Jerry, Joe, and Jim on bass. Right. Okay. Well, now you've got four me on electric piano. Meanwhile, they're filling up the state Gertie's Folk City. The stage is teeny. They've got it full. <laughs> And there you come. Well, I show up. They say, well, the booth right next to the stage, right? You know, there's a booth there that people said, we just put your piano on the table and you play from there. Mm -hmm. And then when they heard the Super Reverb, they went, oh, man, they had all these horrible piece of shit amps. Said, okay, we're running the vocals through your amp <laughs> along with your piano. Okay. So that was my first gig with those guys was at Gertie's Folk City sitting in a booth next to the stage playing my piano through my Super Reverb along with all their vocals going through the Super Reverb. And the rest is history. Yeah, and then we convinced everyone to change the name to the Youngbloods. And then we had this manager, Jesse had this manager, who got us contract with the William Morris Booking Agency and blah, 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 who in turn got us a contract with RCA Records. Woo, woo. God bless the managers. Right. Where did you record? In L.A. or New York? RCA in New York. Okay. So you record this album that has the song Get Together. Could you ever have imagined 50 years later people would still be singing it? No. But about 69, you began to realize that, yeah, maybe, you know, it had a resonant meaning. Hmm. Yeah. We recorded it in 66, I guess, right? Yeah, and it was released as a single in 67, and it got a bit of airplay here and there. But then in 69, when the Christian something or other association started using it in one of their ads, really caught on. And again, our manager and this guy, Augie Bloom, was, who was our RCA rep, convinced RCA to re-release it as a single. And that's when it became a big hit, a nationwide hit in 69. Come on, people And it was just at the right time, and it still is just at the right time. It takes a war. <laughs>
I'll sing you a song here, okay? This song is just at the right time, right now. Sort of a protest song. It was written in 1855 okay. by Stephen Foster, pre-Civil War. And there was slavery and there were these huge inequities, not only in the slave south, but all over the north. People who were extremely, insanely rich and people who were horribly poor, which, thanks to the structures has been set up, remains the case today, even more so being exacerbated this past year. And so, yeah, this is a protest song, sort of. That's quite appropriate for today. pleasures and count its many tears as we all sub sorrow with the poor there's a song that will linger forever in our ears a hard time come again no more it's a song a sigh for the weary hard times Hard times come again no more Many days you have lingered Around my cabin door Oh, hard times come again no more While we seek mirth and beauty and music bright and gay There are frail forms fainting at the door While their voices are silent Their pleading looks will say Oh, hard time, come again no more It's a song, a sigh for the weary Hard times, hard times Come again no more Many days you have lingered Around my cabin door Oh, hard time Come again no more There's a pale maiden Who toils her life away With a worn heart Whose better days are o'er Though her voice could be merry it's sighing all the day Oh, hard time Come again no more It's a song A sigh for the weary Hard times Hard times Come again no more Many days you have lingered Upon my cabin door Oh, hard times Again, no more. 
It's a sigh that is wafted along the troubled waves. It's a wail that's heard upon the shore. It's a murmur that's whispered around the lonely grave. Oh, hard time, come again no more. It's a song, a sigh for the weary. Hard times, hard times, come again no more. Many days you have lingered around my cabin door. Oh, hard time, come again no more. Oh, hard time, come again no more. Wow, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for singing that for us. Very cool. And unfortunately, as you said, still relevant. Yep. A lot of great Hmm. burdens of that song have been sung. One of my COVID gigs was uh, contracted to do a Laura Ingalls Wilder documentary piece of the soundtrack, an instrumental version of that. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. It was aired just recently. Yeah, very recently. I I know a lot of people who saw it. I did not, unfortunately, but a lot of people watched it. Somebody knows where the link is. Yes, anyway, yes, yes. That's me playing the instrumental version of Hard Times in there. I didn't know that. Oh. And then so I did that, and then I realized, wow, you know, this song, why don't I do this I song? I absolutely love your version. It really is beautiful. So, yeah, there you go. Right in there with We Shall Overcome. That's another one I'm adding to my repertoire, yeah. I think, although I think a few other people have done it. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's interesting. It doesn't matter how many people have done it. Also, it's nice to have your own funky sort of mature voice yep. when you Agreed. do it. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. So um, in the rock and roll days, what was it like? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Well, first of all, when you think of rock and roll, what do you think of? Do you think of Bill Haley in the comments, or do you think of Quicksilver <laughs> Messenger Service, or do you think of Jimi Hendrix? You don't think of the young ones, <laughs> right? No, you know. Maybe the Yardbirds, but not the Youngbloods. The Youngbloods are just music. They're not really rock and roll, although they fit in the audiences of the day at the Avalon Ballroom and the Carousel Ballroom and the Fillmore and all that, East and West, accepted us right along with Blue Cheer and the Grateful Dead, Big Brother and the Holding Company and Jefferson Airplane, Mm -hmm. who all played this really loud, before-on-the-floor stuff a lot, and we didn't. (laughs) So right. We played this weird, folky, jazzy, yeah, rocky, bluesy stuff. It wasn't big, bombastic, loud stuff with a lot of distortion or anything. It was just music, and a lot of it had time signature changes and chord changes and whatnot. And Oh, my God. Yeah, well, you bet you scared the rockers then. Yeah, but again, it was accepted, along with all the psychedelic blathering of stuff you should practice at home, but you're taking it out onto the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, in that time or since, who's the coolest musician that you got to meet? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, early influences are Bill Keith. I mean, there's one for you. (laughs) Who I got to sit at his feet, showed me all his shit. Oh, nice. Incredible. All those guys back there in in the Cambridge days were just amazing and took me under their way. I was about four years younger than them, but I was a quick study and a cheerful guy. Yeah, and they would show me anything I wanted to. No. After the Young Bloods were done and you sort of went your separate ways, you did some solo stuff. But you then, as we started talking about, started to tour with Mimi Farina. 
John Baez's sister. How did you, did you guys meet in the Cambridge days? Yeah, we met this woman who was running the Marshall Tavern, uh, Banana and the Bunch, that then was a rock and roll band in the 70s in Northern California and Oregon, and toured around the West Coast a little bit. And that we had a lead guitar player and me, and I played guitar and piano, and then a saxophone player, Jack Bonus, who was incredible, and a bass player, drummer, etc. And we played the Marshall Tavern a lot, and this woman who ran the Marshall Tavern was friends with Mimi, and for some reason she thought that Mimi and I should get together, that we would play well together. Did she set it up? I guess maybe she did anyway, so we did, and it worked, and we clicked, and became good friends, and musically we gelled together. You know, I could compliment her incredible finger-picking style, and then our voices blended really well together. And it was on and off. I mean, we didn't tour constantly or anything like that. We toured a couple of weeks here, and then two or three months later, yep. two or three weeks there, and then maybe the occasional gig here and there. But lasted 20 years. You That's know? fantastic. Yeah, so that was fun. And then, it, meanwhile, I played with a gazillion other bands. I played with Norton Buffalo and a bunch of different blues bands. And played with Zero, this kind of jazz rock band, for a dozen years or so. A bunch of records with them. And the lead guitarist from them, Steve Kimmock, then broke off, formed his own group. I played with him for a while. Played the occasional gig with Dan Hicks, who was an old, old friend. All kinds of folks. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the computer thing. I didn't know this about you. Yeah, I got interested in synthesizers. At the same time, sort of got interested in computers. When I got a synthesizer, what was it, a Korg Poly 6? Yeah. And took the lid off, and obviously it's a computer. Right, of course. <laughs> the synthesizer repair guy I became friends with, and he had another buddy over in El Cerrito in the East Bay who was a sort of a computer guru guy. We found a source to get uh, from Taiwan to buy Renegade Apple II motherboards, and then this guru guy knew exactly what chips to buy to chip them out and what capacitors and all that kind of stuff to buy. And he had an Apple II, and he had an EEPROM burner. You could chip out these boards and then take the ROM out of his Apple II and put it in this EEPROM burner and burn duplicates of it and put them in the main socket of these Renegade boards that you just put all the proper chips into, put a power supply in there and all that stuff and rig up a monitor and plug it all in and bingo, it comes up and says Apple II on the pirated computer that you just <laughs> yeah. put together. That's really it's pretty amazing. So. Yeah. They actually did the heavy lifting. I mostly went for coffee and <laughs> okay. played guitar and stuff. Yeah, but it's still a cool <laughs> thing to say you, you were part of. And then you learn to program it under Apple DOS and learn Apple software, very simple programming. And then this company, Passport Designs, brought out this sequencer software that was basically a multi-track recorder, a four-track recorder software on your computer. This was before MIDI, though. Anyway, so I started finding bugs in their software and writing to them and asking them why. And also, it seemed kind of obvious that if they could do four tracks, they could do eight tracks simply by flipping a bit here and there. And why didn't they do that? They eventually wrote back and said, you think you're such a hotshot, why don't you come down here and apply for a job? <laughs> so I went down there, and then the boss knew a little bit of my background and whatnot, and they said, using our software, if we gave you all the synthesizers and sound modules you need, could you program 
sequences that sound exactly like the tracks of hit records. And I said, of course I can. Wow. Of course, I've never done anything like that in my life before. <laughs> so I became the Nam demo guy doing these sequences of hit records that sounded just like the records that you could play along with. And by this time, we had MIDI. Who knew? Well, so wait a minute. So you're the reason that people can have Mick Fleetwood on their tracks without ever meeting him, and I lose my job. Is that what you're saying? Well, you have to have a some MIDI sequencer <laughs> software and a sound module to play it through and whatnot. But then you can, yes, you can karaoke or whatever. Oh, well. I was really good at finding bugs. I'm kind of a bug magnet for software to this day <laughs> on my phone and everything. <laughs> and so I got put in charge of the beta testing department and then eventually in charge of the whole engineering and design of the interface of the software and all that stuff department. And nobody there ever dreamed that I didn't have a degree in computer engineering. They never asked. Oh, it would have driven them mad. I kind of learned by reading Byte magazines back in the early days and started out understanding about 4% of what I read. <laughs> and when I got to the point where I understood about 11 to 16% of what I read, I knew about enough to fake it. <laughs> <laughs> a little time on your hands did you have? <laughs> That's wild. What years are we talking about? This would be about... 74 to 86 or something. Very cool. And recently, before the lockdown, obviously, and COVID and all that, you were touring with Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. What a gig, a dream gig, if there ever was one. How did you guys meet, or had you met him before? We met at the New Toten Blues Festival. So I made these CDs when I was going to these folk alliance things. I was thinking that I, maybe I wanted to be a folk singer when I grow up. <laughs> But then I made this one that was kind of more blues, and so we kind of marketed it more towards blues. And these guys who run the Newtoden Blues Festival in Newtoden, Norway, heard it. And one of the guys who books it happened to be an old Youngblood fan. And he's, well, listen to this. Banana plays the blues, and it's really good. Why don't we hire him? So they got in touch with me, and I said, wow, that'd be great. And they said, well, we're partially state-sponsored. And the state likes us to have interaction between international musicians and Norwegian musicians. So what if we got a Norwegian band together for you to back you up? And I said, well, you know, as long as they're, you know, really good. And they said, we'll send you YouTube videos of everything. And they got this guy, Newt Hem, who was the drummer, to recruit the musicians who are amazing virtuoso musicians, the cream of the crop of Norway. Well, that's great. And also amazing human beings. They're all like family. They got the whole band there two weeks early. We got to rehearse in the venue that we were going to play in, which was this beautiful 600-seat venue right by the lake. Mm. So we got this band together and started teaching them my stuff, and they just jumped on it like a dog on a bone, and they were all... Just great. These two incredible guitar players, really great bass player. Newt, the drummer, was fantastic. About a week into it, I discovered that the telly player also plays banjo like Bela Fleck. I mean, he's, he's really great, really good banjo player. And the drummer, Newt, is a dobro player, and he plays like what? Jerry Douglas or like David Lindley or... Oof. Amazing, these guys. So we started doing the folk stage, acoustic stage, other sets, as well as the blues scene with the electric. And Stephen is very much involved with the Notoden Blues Festival. He's kind of a sponsor or a mascot or something of it. <laughs> a mascot. I like that. I feel like I'm a mascot now, too. <laughs> but they have the little Stephen School of Blues. 
that was actually a school of blues before little Stephen got involved, but he got involved and then gave it a much more notoriety and publicity, and so it now it's the little Stephen School of Blues. And he has devoted a lot of energy and time into it. That's so beautiful. Where in Norway is it? It is about 80 miles southwest of Oslo. Okay. I've been to Norway, and it's just one of my favorite places on the planet. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite places now, too. Anyway, so he's there... And he's an old Youngbloods fan, so he's coming in and he's listened to a couple of rehearsals. And meanwhile, I've never met him. I haven't followed his work. I haven't followed Bruce Springsteen's work as a West Coast guy. Right. We really never hardly heard of Bruce Springsteen on the West Coast. Say what? Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. Wow. I mean, Born to Run and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. If you were listening to hit radio, maybe you heard some of him. Nothing like what it's like back there. So I'm not really aware... Huh of who this guy is, but Espen, who's one of the promoters and organizers of the festival, comes up to me and says, we're having a dinner, and Stephen would love it if you and Jane would come. And I said, dinner is one of my, like, key phrase catch words, you know, <laughs> that somebody says dinner and I perk right up. So I said, yeah, you know, that's great. But you were you were invited by the man himself. Yeah. But I'm thinking that Stephen is another guy like Espen. Oh. One of the organizers of the festival. So you didn't realize who he was talking about? No. And then the mayor of the town is at this dinner, wow. and there's some people from the World Heritage Organization there. And so hmm. Esmond meets us when we're coming in. He says, is it okay? Stephen would love to sit next to you. Is that okay with you? I said, sure. You know, no problem. Seated next to this guy. Cool guy. He's wearing a bandana. You still didn't know who it was? <laughs> I still don't know who it is. And we're talking, you know, he's this really cool guy. He knows all about Youngbloods and whatnot. We're talking about films. We're talking about Broadway shows. We're talking about music. We're talking about all this stuff. And he's acting, you know, like I'm banana, some sort of big deal. So then Jane and I go back to the room, and I'm looking at the schedule to find out when my next obligation is. It dawns on me, that was Stephen Van Zandt. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I know who that is. Also musician turned actor, by the way. <laughs> right? <laughs> and he's a much bigger deal than I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You got your moment. You got your moment. So the next day, you know, I've seen him again and the attitude has changed somewhat. Anyway, but we became friends there and he came, you know, and saw our set and whatnot. So then next year. I really want to go back and play with my band named themselves the Euphoria Five. So I really want to go back and play with the Euphoria Five again at the festival. Okay. But I know they aren't going to hire me as a headliner again, but I would go back and just play the folk stage or whatever if I could play with these guys again. Oh, so that year we were playing the 600-seat venue, but we got to close the show at Hovig's Hangar, the big 6,000-feet thing. We were going to play Get Together. They were going to have the lyrics up on the big screens on either side of the stage, scrolling by so the audience could sing along. Oh, I love it. When we were rehearsing, the word kind of got around that there was this cool band, and it sounded like a West Coast hippie band because this guy from California had been doing the arrangements. <laughs> the stage manager, the people who were running the show of the main night, came and said, listen, you could do one of your blues numbers, too, in addition to Get Together. But I'm giving everybody solos. These guys are great musicians. I'm not taking any solos. I'm giving everybody else the solos. Right. And it's really cool. Both the guitar players are just amazing. So he says, our schedule's really tight. Can you cut it down to like under four minutes, maybe three minutes? 
for the blues song, you know, and then we'll do get together to close after we do the blues song. I said, yeah, okay, fine. Okay. Yeah. So then Amun Maroon is one of the guitar players. I got two guitar players. Amun is the kind of the rock guitar player. He has a bevy of guitars on stage, a couple of amps, a bunch of effects and whatnot. And then Terye Kin is the telly player. He's also the banjo player that I find out later on. And he's just basically a telly through a fender and classic country, but also rock. Right. So the two of them are great together. But Amun has got all these great sounds and very inventive and creative and amazing guitar player. The opening night is coming, and before the music starts, they have the awards ceremony. And one of the awards is to the best guitarist in Norway that year. Stephen is presenting the award. It goes to Amun. Ooh, you're a guitar player. My pony. Yeah. (laughs) 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 So, and it's presented by Stephen. So you've met some Norwegians. They have a sort of a dry, (laughs) delayed sense of humor. Yep, yep. So he comes backstage. He's beaming. He's got this trophy. And I say to him, oh, man, you're so lucky you won that thing. I was about to fire you. And his face <laughs> just drops, you know, and then he realizes, yeah. oh, I'm kidding, you know. I don't really Anyway, so then the stage manager comes backstage about five minutes later and he says, it's okay, you can let Amun take a few solos. <laughs> See? <laughs> so that was my first year at the Blues Festival. So then the next year I see the main acts are... Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul and Buddy Guy. Hmm. So I had become friends with Stephen, and I had my new mantras that Roy Bookbinder had given me. He tours nine months out of the year, and then three months out of the year, he hangs in Florida where he lives. And I said, when you're in Florida, what kind of gigs do you do? And he said, oh, I don't want to be a local artist. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Interesting. I realized, oh my gosh, I don't want to be a local artist either. (laughs) And so that became my mantra. And then he gave me another one. He said when he was starting out, a good friend of his who was booking him got a gig with this big booking agency. And Roy thought, all right, now my guy is at the big booking agency. I'm going to get big gigs. And sorry, Roy, you know, I hate to tell you, but there's no way, you know, that this agency could ever consider you know, and act like you with the money you make. I mean, we make more money in a two-minute phone call than you make in 10 years. Whoa. But I'll tell you something. You should be making more money than you make. You're worth more. So I'm going to give you five words you should use. You got to ask for it. Hmm. Wow. And I went, okay, that's going to be my second mantra. And so a couple of years later, I wrote Steve an email and said, hey, how you doing? It's Banana here. I see you're playing at No Toten, <laughs> headlining. <laughs> I really loved being there, and I consider this my official application to be a disciple of soul. <laughs> I guess you got your guitar chairs covered pretty well, but I tickle a mean B3. And he wrote back, and he said, well, my B3 chair is covered really well, but I know you tickle a mean whirly, too. Ooh. And my piano chair is actually expendable. <gasps> so. If you want to come play piano and whirly, here's the deal. It's a 15-piece soul band. I plan on being on the road for at least two years. I'm going to do it, win them over fan by fan. We're going to play small, medium venues. I think if we can just keep at it for two years, I might be able to 
realize my lifetime dream of breaking even. <laughs> oh, there you go. She says, so if you're up for that, yeah. And I said, okay, I'm in. He said, be in New York April 16th or whatever it was <laughs> for rehearsals. And like two days before I left, Mark, the musical director, sent me about 37 charts. And here I am going off with a, only a five-string tenor guitar. <laughs> and all these charts that you're supposed to play on the piano. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I rented some studio space in Genova that had a piano and practiced down there in the mornings. Okay. Yeah, and then when I showed up in New York, I pulled it off, fooled them. So has it been a blast? It's the best gig I've ever had in my life. These guys are the best musicians I've ever played with. They're the cream of the crop in New York. Wow. You know, they play in the Broadway shows. They play in the studios. Gone out on tour with Sting and Diana Ross and Springsteen, of course. Cool in the gang. It's the A-team. You finally got to meet Bruce? Oh, yeah. A few times. Good guy. You're playing these meticulous arrangements that are really, really fun. They're all super talented. They're all at the top of their game. They all have this incredible work ethic, and they're all totally simpatico. Oh, that's great. No drama. Oh, <laughs> we like that. <laughs> and he works with you really, really well. He's just the greatest boss. Yeah. Really patient. All he asks is that you do it perfectly, and he'll work with you to get it the way he hears it or the way he sees it or what he hears and sees everything in his head. Down to the lights and the backdrops and the, the whole business. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, it's like a stadium act playing 2,000-seat halls. Yeah, yeah. He's a showman. Oh, yeah. And it's amazing. But, I mean, it costs a fortune. <laughs> Some guys, you know, who have a bunch of money buy yachts or planes or whatnot. Yes. This guy takes a 15-piece band on the road. Isn't that better, though? It's a very expensive hobby. Keep you guys out on the road and everything. I it's mean... fantastic. And I've learned so much. And like I say, these guys are just... And because of the ethos of the whole thing, it's a family. Every other band I've ever been in, practically, is a family, but it's a dysfunctional family. <laughs> and even if it's not offstage, onstage, it's a dysfunctional family. Or if it's not onstage, offstage, it's a dysfunctional family. But this is a truly functional, loving family. Every member of the crew, it's like, you know, 35 people traveling around together. For weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. Right. Let me introduce you to the blood of the young bloods, the man of a thousand instruments. He's Santa's favorite elf. He's my banana from another nana. Please say hello to the living legend, Mr. Lowell Levinger.
I love it. Glad you're getting that experience. So obviously, there's no thought of even slowing down slash retiring. Well, are you going to retire? Where does it say that a musician gets to retire? I know. (laughs) I know financially and all that. But just even spiritually, you know, we don't seem to want to. And you just said an incredible thing. You said, I've learned so much and that you're opened up to still learning. Oh, yeah. After this amazing career you've had. Yeah, you learn and you improve and you practice and you get caught by the bass player for rushing or dragging or something and you get your shit together. It's really fun, as you know, to do stuff that's demanding. Oh, very much so. Then to pull it off and then to be able to put your heart into it and be able to please your boss. And the audience, because what you're giving to the audience, I mean, I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah. There's nobody doing this. There's nobody else doing this kind of a show, really, at all. <laughs> when things get back to some kind of better way after all this is over, do you see him going back out on the road? I think so, yeah. I mean, he's there's probably going to be a Bruce tour before sure. there'll yeah. be a disciples okay. tour i would imagine but yeah as sure. soon as it's possible again i know that he absolutely loved it just as much as anybody in the band having control over that machine over that kind of power mm. you know this horn section and these three girls who sing in perfect harmony perfectly in tune all the time and dance their asses <laughs> off and this whole percussion you know have you ever seen the videos or i did i saw the video and i saw that percussion setup which was incredible If he ever breaks his leg, do call me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Everybody in the band is just exemplary. Ron has played with James Brown when he was 16 years old. Wow. You know, Ravi played with Cool and the Gang and all these other great folks. Everybody's got incredible track records, incredible chops. Like I say, they're all simpatico. It's great. They all get along. They all have consciences and (laughs) compassion and, yeah. So have you been writing anything during this time, or are you just sort of taking it easy? Yeah, I've got, you know, a half a dozen or so original songs that I need to get up to the studio and record as soon as everybody really feels safe about it. Yeah, yeah. As you know, I love to play the old stuff, too. Keep it alive. Yeah, and you do have an incredible plethora of vintage instruments as well. Yeah, I'm thinning the herd as much as I can in these uh, troubled times. You never know what might be necessary. Right. And you do have a website. What is the website for the Vintage Instruments? Vintageinstruments.com. Perfect. <laughs> and if people want to find you on the web? Lowellevenger.com. Pretty easy. Or the Facebook page is Lowellevenger Banana from the Youngbloods. Yep. Facebook page is more active than the website. Perfect. I just can't thank you enough for sitting down and chatting. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it certainly has. And, and uh, like I say, I really look forward to the next time we get to play together. I look forward to that as yeah. well. Thank you. Everybody, you've been listening to Banana on Folk Pod. 2020 was going to be up in the air. At first, it was keep April through the end open, but then it was up in the air because Bruce might go on tour. And if Bruce went on tour, then that would tie Stevie up. Then it was don't worry about 2020. And then everything got shut down. Now, who gets to say... I'm not sure what we're doing because it all depends on Bruce. Who gets to say that? That's the way it goes in the kingdom. (laughs) That's rock and roll. Folkpod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to Folkpod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Folkpod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.